Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network and African Studies. I'm uh, Susan Thompson of Colgate University, and I'm delighted to have with me today a colleague in our very own Department of History, Sega Atefa. He's just written a book titled The Origins of Ethnic Conflict in Africa, Politics and Violence in Darfur, Aromia, and the Tana Delta. Published in 2019 by Palgrave Macmillan, and he asked an important question that scholars have puzzled with for a long time. Are ethnic conflicts in Africa the product of age-old hatreds? Of course, foreign reporting would suggest yes, but Atefa's book, of course, provides a more nuanced and historical analysis, arguing that elites mobilize their co-ethnics for political gain. He does so in a way that is unique. He provides comparative perspective on cases from Sudan, Ethiopia, and Kenya. So, of course, his new book also diagnoses the question of ethnic politics in Africa, but also provides some recommendations and solutions. Segetepa, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you for giving me the uh, opportunity to talk about uh, my work. Um, It's my pleasure. I'm excited to have you here. It's fun to be with a colleague. I wonder if we could start the interview by uh, just you saying a few words about yourself, where you're from, where you were born, where you went to school. Um, how you became interested in the question of ethnic violence and the way that African elites <clears throat> mobilize it for their ends. Um, thank you very much. Um, I was born in um, western Oromia state of uh, Ethiopia, um, rural area, um, a good uh, 12 hours um, away from uh, Addis Ababa. Um, I went to school, uh, up to high school there, and then um, I joined uh, Addis Ababa University for first degree and uh, second degrees. I was hired by the same um, Addis Ababa University um, until um, I went to um, Germany, University of Hamburg, for um, doctoral work. Um, I'm interested in this um, kind of work, starting from my uh, master's thesis, uh, which is on Ethiopia-Sudan border. Um, a very remote, um, isolated uh, region um, <clears throat> about community relations, um, how they um, try to solve their own issues by themselves without um, the government. Um, so it starts from there. Um, in the 90s, um, especially in 1996, that was the first time I went to this particular region um, studying about various ethnic groups. So um, at least five um, different ethnic groups living together, um, and uh, they have um, what we call Michu institution, which is um, indigenous conflict um, managing mechanism. Uh, even though it belongs to one ethnic group, the Oromo, all others use it. So that, that's the, the beginning, um, the beginning of uh, my interest. Um, I won a research grant uh, known as um, <clears throat> Othirium, um, that is um, an organization for Eastern and Southern Africa. 
uh, to study a conflict uh, in the same region. That, that was 1998 um, on the mutual on the, on the conflict resolution mechanism. And it was published by them um, in 2002. And um, that's the beginning of my interest in ethnic relations, ethnic conflicts. So you said um, quite a lot there. I want to ask a few follow-up questions. Is it important for you to have people of that region researching the region? What are the benefits or, or pitfalls? What are the hindrances to having someone from the region researching the region? I personally think it's really important, and I thought it was interesting as early as 1998. You're being funded to research your own communities in some sense. How does that um, funding really affect your career? Um. <clears throat> Um, very much. So <laughs> that was that was the first time um, I won um, a research grant. Uh, that was actually a big competition uh, all over to South Africa, from Ethiopia to South Africa. Um, and um, yes, it is interesting because this is um, a remote area, um, and um, I know um, I speak the language uh, more than one language. Uh, the communities there um, speak. And also, uh, particularly in one particular side of the same region, I went, uh, number one, uh, they didn't have roads, um, no transportation, especially during rainy season. Mm -hmm. They didn't have hotels. So I have to stay with families. Um, that was difficult for somebody from different area. Um, and from another uh, side of um, the site I went, um, there was only one hotel. Um, and um, um, I had um, I stayed in that hotel, but um, the owner of the hotel himself turned out to be my assistant. So um, they facilitated my research um, all the way to close to Sudan border. Um, so yes, I had the language advantage. I had um, the opportunity to interview influential people uh, wherever they were at that time, uh, which could be tough uh, for somebody from different areas. And someone who's not of your skin color or ethnic identity and so yes. I mean, there's just questions white people yes. can't ask, let's so, just say it bluntly. Yes, that's, that's actually um, a big one. So um, the trust issue, um, some of them even um, looked at me and they were happy that um, some of them um, said, are you a journalist? Um, can we tell you our problems, please? Can you tell our problems the government? So... Um, um, I tried to do uh, some kind of um, interview with um, um, a, a media, government-owned medium, um, after my research um, to address especially um, infrastructural issues in the region. So yes, that also helps. So being of the same um, skin color, yeah, yeah, language group. I think there's also yeah. something really interesting in what you said. Is you're a historian who does interviews. Yes. So how did you manage your method as a historian? I see in your book there's colonial sources, you read broadly in literature, but you also use field work. Yeah. How did you um, manage that with your PhD committee and how? what kind of scholar do you see yourself as? Do you define yourself as a historian or maybe something a bit different? I don't know how you see yourself given your the... the, the, the um, tradition that historians are in the archives, we deal, they deal with texts. I'm a political scientist, so the question is um, coming from my own experience, for sure. Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. So, um, yes, I am a trained historian. Uh, both my first degree, second degree um, is history. So um, I went to a history department um, uh, in Addis Ababa University. 
um, and um, um, I, I consider myself a historian. Um, my uh, conflict um, piece and the conflict uh, piece um, came particularly from um, writing that proposal for um, Ethiopia Organization for um, um, Eastern and Southern Africa um, on the Mitchell Institution. Um, <clears throat> I don't. My, my methodology is still um, yes, colonial works, archives um, in the local um, district offices there, but also interviews. So my interviews, um, I don't rely on questionnaire, for example, as uh, others do. Mm -hmm. um, I live with people, I talk to them, I interview them uh, more than once. Um, so talk to them. Um, <clears throat> I'm directly or directly get information, write down or record their information. So um, that's how I um, I live with them. I stay with them. I live with them. I ask them questions, uh, cross check them with others. Mm -hmm. um, um, and um, in this particular region, um, I, I would say that um, there were few of us, few historians went there. So uh, when I went there, uh, I, don't, I didn't have anyone um, who had done history work. Uh, there were a couple of people who did um, anthropology, but from history point of view, um, I didn't have any written um, record other than very few um, travelers who crossed to Sudan um, mm -hmm. from Ethiopia. They, they wrote down about who the people were, the rivers, the mountains they crossed. They were helpful, but how the people that went there, um, how they live, how, what were their problems, how do they try to solve their issues, those I have to rely on uh, informants um, and by asking them not about uh, through a questionnaire, uh, they don't even read and write. So um, talking to them, um, I stayed there for a long time. So the first time I went there in 1996, I continued to work um, all the way to 2004. So intermittent um, visit to the region. I think you say two important things there. One, you use anthropological methods in a form of life history to listen to people and contextualize what you know from texts and archives and your, you know, your own studies. But also you say, I think, something really important that listeners might remind their students of and students preparing to do fieldwork could find useful long-term relationship building and trust and consent and all these issues, they really just come by being with the people. Mm -hmm. you, you can design it, you can think about it. Uh, do you have any advice in that sense about how you might um, advise a student, say a graduate student going to do their PhD in a remote part of wherever in the world, not just parts of Ethiopia and Sudan? Yes. Um, Questionnaires are still important for me. For example, for my, I'll, I'll, I'll keep them um, for for myself, uh, but it's not something to distribute. So um, it's good to have uh, questions um, questionnaire um, with them when they go there. Uh, one important thing is that this one is remote, uh, which means um, infrastructure is very much limited. Um, so they have to be ready for this, um, and also. Um, this particular region is um, there. There is malaria in the area, so um, all kind of um, uh, precautions are needed uh, before travel. 
Another one is also um, transport is very much tough one. Um, mm-hmm. When I went uh, there, uh, now there is improvement, but still um, it's tough to um, uh, navigate all the way um, um, through, through, the, through the region. Um, so um, if they arrange all kind of um, paperwork with local um, officials, local government, um, they need permission, of course, uh, paperwork. Um, they need, of course, transport um, and assistance from the region. Uh, with that, um, yeah, uh, should be all right. I think the second thing um, that I observed in your comments moves us into the core of your book. You talked about observing local conflicts and how they manage those local conflicts. How did you move to thinking about these local instances of, you know, community-based conflict over land or over crops or whatever the case might be, family disputes, to thinking about how political elites in these three different cases that you chose mobilize their co-ethnics for political gain. I think that's really the strength of your argument. You're very clear in these, you know, unusual cases, let's call them, when we think about social science comparisons. You choose three very different cases and make one very compelling argument about the use of ethnicity. How did that field experience translate into these big questions that you have in, in your current book? That's a very good question. So since I lived there, um, I know a peaceful relationship about the communities. So I've done um, conflict um, resolution mechanism, the indigenous way, um, in the region. So um, my work, um, the first book uh, about these um, and their ethnic relations uh, on a frontier, um, that's the title of the book that was published in 1990, that was up to 1991, published in 2006. But major conflicts in, in this particular region um, occurred after 1991. Mm-hmm. So I started to question, what is the problem? So why is this? So 2007, 2008, for example, particular group, um, the, the about 400 Gumus people, well armed, went to their neighbors, um, Oromo neighbors, and then they, um, during the, um, in the early morning, they started to attack, kill, burn everything. So wow, how come this happened? So these, the Gumus and the Oromo, they never had conflict. I didn't come across any work uh, or interviewing them, uh, any organized attack before 1991. Wow. So I couldn't find anything. The same thing happened among the Orma and the Pokomo in Kenya. I couldn't find colonial archives or other uh, literature uh, organized attack between the Gumus, I'm sorry, between the Pokomo and the Oromo in, the, in Kenya in the, in the Tana River. So what what is then? Why is this happening since 1991? So if we take that of Kenya, for example, um, 1991 was the beginning of multi-party election. Um, multi-party system was, system was introduced. The election occurred in 1992. Um, so there was conflict that year. So 1991, 2000, 2002, another election, another conflict. 1997, another election, another conflict. So uh, 2012, mm-hmm. 2013, another conflict. So it's very much election-related. 
what what happened what interesting in the Kenya case is that it happened before before election results um so um in the case of Ethiopia also among the gumus um is very much i came to the point that this is not about hatred ethnic hatred is not about um resource fight it is political problem so it's political fight um used by elites. So um, these well-armed 400, over 400 gumus, these were local militia. Um, in fact, um, some local um, officials um, themselves, um, they were behind this. Um, so politically driven for short-term gains rather than uh, resource conflict, rather than hatred among, no hatred, so I couldn't find hatred uh, among them. So uh, where is the hatred? So they didn't have really um, hatred. As has been um, uh, mentioned so many times um, in the media that this is ancient hatred fight. They don't like each other. Um, that's not the case. So uh, the Gumus, the Oromo, they were in peace. Uh, they lived in peace for so long. The Gumus speak, for example, so many Oromo, Afan Oromo language. Um, in the Kenya case, also the same. So um, it's politically driven um, rather than resource uh, conflict or conflict based on um, who they were. You said, I think, really two important things in your um, commentary there. Thank you. It's really interesting to see these cases being compared. And you say pre-1991... There really wasn't any open conflict. So you talked about arming. Um, does this lack of like warfare? So when we think of conflict, of course, violence takes many forms. We're talking about the absence of war, like of armed conflict. What does it say about the colonial legacies of violence? And I'm thinking here particularly of African political elites today who say that everything that's wrong with our society is a product of the colonialists. So of course, Structurally, this is absolutely true. But practically, in terms of how politics are practiced in the post-colonial era, what can your study tell us about colonial legacies of violence and the way, perhaps, if I understand your argument correctly, post-colonial elites have taken on the structures of colonization for their own political gain against their own people? Am I reading you yeah. correctly? Yes. So, yes, structurally, yes. But... Um, we cannot really um, say everything um, is about colonial um, problem. Um, say, for example, Rwanda. So um, <laughs> if, if you take the case of Rwanda, um, we cannot always blame about the Hamitic myth, um, which really, um, which was sad. So the Hamitic myth um, was refuted, for example, throughout Africa um, after independence. But in Rwanda, um, it, it was used uh, by elites uh, for their own uh, political um, gains. So uh, blaming one, for example, blaming one, um, um, for example, um, the Tutsis were um, told they were from um, somewhere else. So Horn of Africa, for example, yes. um, that's what the Hamitic myth um, said. Um, and um, um, John Speak, he was the one who went there and who um, told, wrote about that, that the um, 
the two seeds came from Ethiopia. So that's not really the case. So, um, we, yes, um, colonialism, uh, we have problems uh, with uh, pro uh, colonialism, uh, colonial legacies, but um, in terms of ethnic conflict we are talking about now, um, no. So these are politicians, elites, um, using um, maybe col colonial um, issues for their own political purpose, but otherwise oh, we cannot continue to uh, put the blame uh, on colonialism. So um, in short, yes, structurally, yes, but in actual fact, um, no. Um, 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 I have one quotation uh, in my book, um, um, Martin Meredes, um, he was saying that um, um, the, 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 the genocide that occurred um, in Rwanda was not about um, ancient hatred, not about colonialism, um, it's about um, politicians using um, ethnicity for their own political gains. I mean, I think the Rwanda case is so interesting and it does raise um, questions about your research insofar as what is the founding myth that elites rely on, ethnic founding myths. So of course, as you note, in the Rwanda case, it starts with the Hamitic myth. Tutsi elites of the day heard the myth. It, it accorded with the worldview and the way that they wanted to manage the colonizers who had arrived at that time. Of course, the language of 1994 was also Hamitic myth. So these things take a life and they cascade because elites take, keep them alive. And we see this, you know, founding myth, the narrative of who belongs and who doesn't belong in a state system, I think very clearly in your work. And it raises a question that came up from, you, from my prior question. You say very clearly foreign journalists, foreign diplomats, foreign policymakers still rely on these age-old ethnic hatred tropes? Why? That is sad. So, yes, that's a good question. So they should rely on actual um, information. So, um, number one, maybe they don't have um, um, people on the ground. Um, if they, for example, rely on somebody who is West African reporting on East African, um, so that may not be the case, um, or maybe this um, the local agent may be um, under um, influence of the government on power at that time. Mm -hmm. um, the government uh, probably they provide um, transport, hotels for this local agent, and they may not be uh, providing actual information, but um, they they. Whatever um, their source, they should cross-check um, what is going on on the ground before making it public. So it's really sad. I mean, big-name um, news outlets um, stating that this is tribal conflict, this is tribal hatred, ancient hatred. No, where is that ancient hatred? So people in Africa, they really live in peace. They want peaceful way of life. Um, uh, and um, not really um, out there to kill somebody. Well, it's really interesting what you say, because it seems to me when I was reading through the middle part, when you're doing all that rich historical comparative work, because one thing I think is so rich about your chapter, or your book, I mean, and makes it so useful for graduate students and for scholars, is that the introduction really tells us what we can expect and the conclusion really wraps up with how we can address, you know, what are your recommendations and proposals 
The middle part, though, is so rich because it reminds us of a contradiction. We rely on the language of old age hatreds because political elites will invoke it. Journalists from um, foreign agencies and diplomats and so on. Oh, well, a local elite let it, so it must be valuable. But that in turn, to me, seems to be a contradiction. You can't say everything is a colonial legacy if you're invoking things that occurred before colonization arrived. And I think what I really took away from the middle part when you do these rich historical case studies, including contemporary life histories that we talked about at the beginning of the interview, how people understand themselves vis-a-vis states who don't actually care for them, and they know it. So you also have a section on liberation struggles and the way that liberation is really not fully possible because, of course, we're still operating in a state system. Do you have any comment on how we can begin to unpack these contradictions as analysts? Like if someone were to take take your book, be inspired by it, and want to write their own contribution to build on what you've said, what, what, what can they take away from your book that can be used by the next generation? Um, that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> so, um, all right. So I guess just um, flipping through his book so we okay. can find yes. some text. Yes. Okay, okay. So, um, the first one, the first one is um, introduction. Um, I did, I did in that introduction uh, all kind of um, um, explanations out there about um, ethnic conflicts, and then uh, the middle part, yes, as you said, is about um, details of um, historical um, analysis um, <clears throat> in in these three countries: um, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Kenya. And at the end. Um, Conclusion: um, What to do? So, um, graduate students, uh, policymakers, um, they should, um, I think, um, <clears throat> pay attention to uh, what really is on the ground. Uh, even if they read um, something um, in the medium um, out there, they should cross-check um, all the time. Yes, of course they do, but. Um, and instead of um, we we still have some um, writers who um, state that um, ethnic um, hatred, ancient hatred, they still there are some who still use that one, but they should cross check. Of course, uh, keep doing that. Um, cross check what they have. Um, look at um, historical details. So um, in the middle part, um, so I uh, try to um, talk about. Historical details. So, providing historical details, um, give giving a further um, analysis, further explanation of um, that this is not the case. So um, that's that's important. Um, I tried to use um, some archives, um, um, interviews, of course, um, trying to um, give further details. Um, that's another thing. Um, so interdisciplinary is good. Um, so interdisciplinary, um, historical analysis, uh, peace and conflict analysis, uh, anthropological analysis, yes, these are important ones. And also um, it's good um, if they also pay attention to um, transnational. Um, so this is um, not just one particular um 
locality or country. So I'm comparing um, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Kenya. Mm -hmm. uh, why is this important? Um, it is important because um, um, if we talk about, yes, we are talking about conflict. So in conflict, so there will be displacement. So uh, what happens in um, Sudan affects neighboring countries, affects Chad, people move to the other side, um, weapons smuggling across the border, um, escalating conflicts, for example, um, and also um, some uh, criminals um, um, in the reading, I used mercenaries also. Right. Um, so they they cross to the other side. So um, evade from uh, officials. So um, yes, interdisciplinary, transnational. Uh, these are important. How do we solve these kind of problems? Um, I suggest at the end, um, regional conflict resolution strategy is important. Um, <clears throat> so work um, with other uh, neighboring countries how to handle. Um, cases. So, if I talk about Gumuth, for example, they can either they they used uh, they they did they, they they can easily cross to Sudan. So um, there are Gumuth living there. So um, there were so many um, ring readers, suspects of the conflict, um, not arrested for over ten years. Um, so some some of them might uh, keep uh, crossing the border. So um, transnational, yes. Um, interdisciplinary is good, yes. Um, um, Cross-checking, um, whatever um, available sources, um, and um, interviewing people. Um, this, these are important points. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I had that from, brings me to us. Um, we're getting towards the end of our interview, but I still have a few questions. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's really delightful to learn from a new book, but it's also especially delightful to learn from a colleague. So um, I can't decide which questions to ask you. We've talked about um, your method and how you want to triangulate and encourage students to go slow and careful. So, of course, this is against the impulse of the academy. We're really rushed in some ways. We must publish or perish to use that dreaded phase. But when I uh, phrase, when I was reading your book, one thing that really came to my mind and maybe it's because I just spent a year in South Africa at the University of Cape Town. We are, I think, in a decolonial turn insofar as we're looking for more local knowledge, you know, in, in, in air quotes. Um, do you see your work as part of a canon of decolonizing the academy or where would you situate your work in broader contexts? I think what's so interesting is you're a historian asking political science questions. So obviously interdisciplinary, but interdisciplinarity is not decolonial. How, how would you um, situate your work in that sort of broader discussion that's happening across campuses, you know, across yeah. the world in many ways, in yeah. Africa in particular? Uh, that's a good um, a good point. So, um, before publication, um, I, ha I had one comment about um, colonialism. Um, someone suggested that um, maybe I'm devaluing colonial impact. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> colonial impact, uh, so that's why I didn't really go into the details um, about colonial impact. I didn't talk that much about that. Um, but um, yes, um, this is um, post-colonial governments. So this post-colonial, I'm talking about post-colonial governments. Um, 
majority of the issues in Africa we have right now, they really are post-colonial. So um, colonial problems, colonial issues, um, those could be handled. So they could have handled. So the Rwandans could have handled, for example, colonial problems, the same as in Sudan. So I'll come to Darfur in a minute. But um, these kind of, I mean, if, for example, we have 400 armed groups, armed militia, um, going after another village, killing, attacking them, that's what happened in Ethiopia. Something similar happened in, um, in Kenya, in the Tana River in Kenya. So are we blaming colonialism for this? Was the government in a position to handle this? Yes. So the government on power right now, or at the time, at the time of conflict, um, was responsible um, rather than um, um, colonial um, problems. So um, yes, um, it is mainly post-colonial. Uh, the, the work is mainly post-colonial um, in, in, in all three cases. And uh, I put the blame on the post-colonial government. Very squarely. Very squarely. <laughs> Very squarely, Very squarely mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> um, as we move to your conclusion, I think yeah. one thing that's really valuable about it is that you do basically ask political elites to take more concern for their populations. And you center, I think, if I um, understood you correctly, democratization institutions should be democratic. Legitimacy should come from the voice of the people. There should be regional cooperation. Foreign donors and so on should maybe step back a little bit and let local people do more, local elites as well as local people. Um, Can you speak to your conclusions? And and what is the impact of that for perhaps for peace in the region? Yes, very good point. So um, I didn't mention about... um, um, indigenous mechanism um, a lot. So, um, yes, I suggest in the conclusion that um, promote um, local grassroots mechanisms of conflict resolution. So, um, when I was working on doctoral work about um, local mechanisms in, um, in the uh, remote part of um, Western Ethiopia um, region, um, 2003, that was the time when Darfur conflict escalated. So that's, w- yes. that's what brought me into Darfur. So um, I started to question, what is the problem in Darfur? So I was working on my own region um, about local mechanisms. So what's going on in Darfur at that time? I started to question what happened to the local mechanism there. So um, are the local people... Um, um, <clears throat> trying to help um, each other solve their issues um, is the Judea mechanism. They, they have what we call the Judea mechanism functioning uh, similar to the Michu mechanism um, in Ethiopia, Western Ethiopia. So um, I started to read um, on Darfur um, about that um, and um, I started to compare the two, the two regions. So one major issue, I came um, to the point, to the conclusion about conflict in Darfur in, um, in the 80s, so mainly in the 80s and in the 90s. And that of Western Ethiopia was um, the decline of conflict 
resolution mechanism, indigenous mechanism. So local people, they were not in a position to function the way they used to or do uh, because of government interference. So that's basically what happened in Darfur in the 80s. So um, the weakening, um, deterioration of uh, local mechanism, um, important factor, um, and uh, of course there are other factors which I mentioned, um, such as border problems um, with Chad and uh, Libyan issues, of course, and um, civil war um, in uh, in Chad. So yes, um, I suggest um, that um, people should be um, left on their own uh, to function um, about land issues, to talk about land issues, handle land issues. Um, handle conflicts the way they used to before. So, um, yes, um, that has to be one important point um, that uh, lawmakers should pay attention, encourage the elders, mm-hmm. let them do what they should do um, without government interference. So, um, it is important also to mention um, the role of uh, Musa Ibrahim Madibu in Darfur. Um, he tried um, um, his best and succeeded in keeping, for example, his his community from um, really uh, participating in the Darfur crisis. Um, so the majority of the Bagara um, group in um, South Darfur, they did not participate in the Darfur conflict, mainly because of his role. So um, something similar should be encouraged in other parts of the world, uh, in Africa and the world. So local people... Um, they should continue to work uh, the way they should. They should. Um, that's one uh, suggestion I have. Um, and then, yes, promote democracy. So um, on paper, for example, um, Ethiopia was a democratic country. So if you read the constitution, so it looks um, a democratic country, but um, and also um, federal, federal structure. But in practice, so I have quotation um in, in this section, that in practice, uh, they're not really doing that. So um, it's really, in practice, is unitary state. So there was um, um, the, the, the party on power that was um, really interfering in the regional um, federal structure. So um, that has to be um, <clears throat> looked at. So promote, yes, promote genuine democratic principles. That is what has to be done. Um, transparent, um, fair economic distribution um, that has to be also uh, implemented. That's what I have suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, we have land deals, for example, land land grabs in Africa. So it, it's never transparent. So uh, what's the impact? Uh, even what's the impact on uh, on people? Uh, where is the money going? Uh, where are the um, displaced people uh, going? How are they living? Impact on environment. Um, so all of this has to be um, um, paid attention to. Of course, um, capacity building at all levels. So there were a series of um, inept officials um, only appointed because they were loyal to the government, right. to the party. Um, so not really somebody um, um, able to work. Um, a series of most of these conflicts could be um, handled um, even after it erupted. Um, for example, in the Gumus attack on the Oromo, they arrived three days after fight. 
So the officials arrived. The the um, law enforcement arrived three days. Even when they arrived, maybe they ran out of um, fuel for their transport, transport problems, logistic problems, mm-hmm. a lot of infrastructural problems. So, um, so yeah, that's why I said just that one. Um, judicial judicial accountability, of course, um, 10 years, 8 years, even still um, today, mm-hmm. uh, many of the suspects were not um, arrested. Right, impunity. Yeah, impunity. Um, so, yeah. <clears throat> I um, appreciated the, the conclusion because it was very clear, uh, really intended, I think, for an audience of academics, but also an yeah. audience of policymakers. So I'm always appreciative when a, an academic is able to turn themselves to the broader public. And that's one thing I really enjoyed about your book. One thing that I also think is a good point for us to um, begin to close up on is your curiosity. You really just have, you exemplify, for me anyway, just a life of the mind. You're curious about the world and your people and how can we promote solutions, which seems rare in this day and age. Um, Simply, we both sit here in the United States as non-Americans ourselves, and we see how they talk with each other. So thank you for your curiosity. I, I truly appreciate it. And my last question before we begin to close how has writing this book or just being a, a, a an academic who writes and publishes affected your teaching or your, your mentoring? How does writing change the author? Um, <clears throat> so thank you very much. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a good question. So I'm not sure if I mentioned about it in the, uh, in, in the reading. So I always ask my students, um, so why do people kill each other? So, you do mention it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why do people kill each other? So um, um, it's, it's tough to find um, answer um, to this kind of question. Yes, well, I have some, um, of course, suggestions in, in, in the writing, uh, some answers um, in the writing, in the in the, in the book. Um, so I share this with my students. We, we discuss in class. So why do... Um, People kill each other. So we also discuss about um, is it really um, ancient hatred? Um, is it really uh, is so? If you talk about tribal conflict, tribal hatred. So um, there are so many uh, groups uh, in in Africa. Even in one country, more than uh, there are more than eighty. Uh, for example, in Ethiopia alone. Yep. So if if we say that this is ethnic one. Uh, tribal hatred, so we'll have every village um, fighting each other. So we do discuss about this. Um, so after I completed my uh, doctoral work uh, in 2006, um, I continue to keep an eye on uh, this particular region where I did my work. Um, and um, it really affects me also uh, personally um, when people um, kill each other. Yes, absolutely. So I, I really feel it. So I really feel it. Um, I feel sad, extremely sad. I mean, um, how come um, unorganized uh, militia go out there and kill, uh, burn uh, properties, houses? Um, so, um, so yes, I really feel it. Um, sometimes I share also in, in my class. Sure. So th- there is a link there. So with my writing, 
um, with students and also is also live is personal. Of course. So I lived with them. Uh, I really lived with them when I went there um, in the Western uh, Ethiopia. So no hotel. So I I stayed with them in their houses. Mm-hmm. So uh, I really feel bad when this kind happens. Uh, so um, um, so yes, there is strong um, connection. Um, I mean, it's powerful because yeah. you. Um, you're curious about solving real life problems, yeah. And what is one that um, vexes humanity? You know, mm-hmm. for, for for as long as there's been humans living together, why do we kill our neighbors? Yeah. And it's a question that we think is unique to Africa, but of course, it's um, a question that travels. It matters in Canada where there's gun violence. Obviously, gun violence in the United States. Why are we killing? Why are we our killing? neighbors? I think yeah. to bring students into those questions is really a strength of your um, teaching. So as we wrap up for real this time. Do you have any readings or um, other sources that you would suggest that our listeners could follow up on if they want to pursue the ideas we've discussed today in greater detail? Okay. Um, Yeah. Um, um, John McCauley, um, The Logic of Ethnic and Religious Conflict in Africa. Um, I liked it. Um, So um, it's, it's, it's a good one. 2017, Cambridge. Oh, I'll put a link on the website okay. so our, our listeners can um, easily access it. Yeah. Um, in terms of talking about killing neighbors, um, um, I like um, Fuji Ans, uh, Killing Neighbors um, in Rwanda. I, I, I really um, enjoyed it. Um, unfortunately, she passed away. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's really a good book. Um, it's um, um, clearly written. Um, so these two are something I can say for now. Well, it's so interesting that you choose those um, two books because they really do complement your own personal framework of mixed methods, interdisciplinarity, yeah. and yeah. so on. Um, final question for you. What are you working on now? What's your next project? Yes, um, a good question. So um, I am now taking a break from com- <laughs> from conflict. And uh, I'm working on uh, slavery, um, but again, it is uh, from um, human point of view. Of course. So um, in the eastern um, or uh, yeah, eastern Africa, East Africa, Indian Ocean trade, the Red Sea trade, um, we really do not have uh, that much of um, books, um, even for our uh, classes. Um, but I'm focusing on. Um, emotional and physical impact of slavery, slave trade in the Red Sea, Indian Ocean, generally the Asia trade. Right. So um, I grew up in a rural area. I had to walk long um, uh, to schools. So um, in, in this um, part of the world, um, in the 19th century, um, many children were uh, sold into slavery and they, got, they had to walk long distance, all the way to the coast. Yep. So nobody is paying attention to that, for example. So many died on the way. So um, they were walking uh, barefoot um, without enough um, water, food, uh, with their appropriate um, clothing. Yeah, being forced. Yes, and um, that's what I'm focusing on. And the emotional impact, um, the emotional impact, um, so starting from capture. Um, so I'm talk, I'm I'm saying so I'm titling it as the middle passage. So the middle passage 
um, is the um, the transportation of Africans to the Americas across the across the Atlantic. That was across the Atlantic, but and applying that about overland. Right. It is, it is still passage. Absolutely. So the passage from the time of capture um, in, the, in the villages um, all the way to uh, to the port. Um, so Red Sea or Indian Ocean. So um, the Middle Passage um, overland um, in during the 19th century in Eastern Africa, Northeast Africa, that's what I'm now uh, working on. I mean, I think that's really um, important work because, of course, when you talk to, you know, North Americans about slavery, they think it's a thing that happened mm-hmm. only in West Africa. And, of course, that's just not true. The human impacts were vast and broad. And it's. I think you're right. We do need more mm-hmm. studies of the, of the region that you grew up in. I can offer you, though, two books on that side. They're historical fictions. They might give you some inspiration. There's a Canadian named Lawrence Hill. He wrote a book called The Book of Negroes, okay. and it traces the life of a young woman. She had to walk <laughs> to the coast from some, probably somewhere in Chad, maybe Central African Republic. Today we're not, it's, I don't remember, I read the book a long time ago. And then there's another book that I actually teach in one of my courses called Homegoing, and oh. it's by, by a, a young Ghanaian-American, and I, I can't remember her name right now, Yesai Guy, I think, G-A-A, and she writes about the impact across generations of being of slavery, but also being born in the United States. So those two books may inspire you. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, much, yeah. students, of course, love historical fiction because they begin to feel the human effects. And I think that's one thing I know I struggle with, and I could see that struggle in your book too. How do we humanize these people while still making a cogent argument? So... Um, Sega Tafa, thank you for your time today. It's been delightful to thank talk you. with you. Thank you really, really very much. My pleasure. Yeah. Of course, we're discussing um, your recent book, The Origins of Ethnic Conflict in Africa, Politics and Violence in Darfur, Aromia, and the Tana Delta. Um, again, thank you so much. Thank you really, very, very much.